Hello, um, everybody. It's Charlie. This okay. is the podcast to hell is to hell and back. Notice that I didn't even get the name of it right. And yet it's been the name of my podcast for five years, five years, 2017, I started. And, um, and so, uh, and, and that's one reason is that I've been sort of out of uh, commission, off duty on the illness injured list or something like that for the last year and a half practically while the pandemic went on and while I was attending to other things. And now uh, I'm back to hell is to hell and back is back. And uh, so, but things are different now. So I've got headphones, which I never had before. Look at these. These are Dr. Dre Beats. Ever see these? You probably did, but but I'm not very familiar with them. These are my uh, these are my son Ruben's headphones, and he said they'd be better quality than anything I was looking at. So here we go. Now I'll be able to hear, um, and and I've got this microphone which I've never had. So I've got this sort of thing that's really like trying to get right in my face, and it's it's a little bit distracting. Oh, and I and one other thing, if you watched a podcast that I posted already or that I'm going to post because I'm just starting to post these. I did one a couple of weeks ago and I wore this hat. So here's my hat. See this lovely silver hat. And I explained then that I got it at a, at a senior art project of a student at Smith College uh, who I have worked with. And she was she did this art project where you are mindful of objects. And uh, she put like a thousand objects in a room on the floor. And then anybody who came, you'd sit there in a chair and look at the objects and be mindful of them and think about them and see what object calls out to you, which object calls out to you. And this hat called out to me. And then you're supposed to take it with you and it's yours. And then you just leave a note card explaining why you took it. So I left a note card. I took this. I've had it for quite a few weeks now. And uh, I sometimes uh, wear it at my DBT skills group, which is a Zoom on Zoom. And, um, and what I wrote was, I don't know why I took it. And I still don't know exactly why I took it, but I have figured out, I've come, I've made progress in the last couple of weeks because I've figured out that the reason I took it is that there's some way in which it is a counterpoint to the rest of my personality. But then Nicole, who I'm about to introduce to you, pointed out to me that actually this is not entirely true, that there are other things I do that are kind of on the irreverent edge. Uh, that, that So this hat is not the only thing that I don't understand and that I do spontaneously without knowing what I'm doing. But I, I really thought I'd keep wearing this hat until I don't, uh, until I understand it at least. Uh, I thought it might represent sort of a political uh, opposition to me or maybe a gender opposition to me or just sort of some something different. And I don't know quite what it is. So, but it goes nicely with my headphones. I hope you think I'm talking to, when I say you, by the way, I'm talking to all of you, anybody who's listening to this or anybody who happens to be watching it on YouTube and who you are in my mind is a whole wide spectrum of people. I, I don't know who you are, of course, though I'd love to hear who you are and I'd love to get input from you through any means possible, including my website where it's possible to leave me messages. And maybe you can put comments wherever you're listening to the podcast. But I would love to hear because I wanna, I wanna figure out who I'm talking to. But who I tend to be talking to is anybody who experiences suffering in their lives. Anybody who experiences adversity in their lives, which is kind of a large group of people, probably all humans, for instance. I don't know if it goes beyond human, but I think this could be all humans could potentially benefit from some of the messages that I'm intending to do because everybody gets into hell and everybody has to get back from hell. And that's what this is all about. Using DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, and other um, frameworks of thinking in order to deal with that. So hello, welcome, welcome back. Welcome to my new technology. I actually even have two lights as if it's like a television studio in front of me that you can't see. And so it's, it's really, uh, I'm distracted. Sorry to go on about that. So I wanna introduce um, Nicole. Nicole, who you, if you're watching this, you can also see, and if you're listening to this, you will shortly hear. Um, Nicole is joining me as a co-host and we're figuring out what that means as we go. This is our first time. 
And we, uh, but it isn't the first time we've had conversations because we've been talking for several years actually about DBT, about dialectics, about suffering, about getting in and out of hell, uh, and various other things that she brings from her world, because um, you know she's a, a different generation than me. She comes from a different place than me. I come from the West Coast. She comes from the East Coast, um, and yet we've had really interesting conversations. Um, and I just thought that'd be really a nice addition to this. And so we're going to figure out how to make best use of that as we go along. So you can look forward to that. And uh, I hope you find it useful and interesting and compelling to listen to, because we would like to be able to, to have you and your friends and your family and your dog listen, anybody listen, you know, that wants to listen. So Nicole, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much, Charlie. Um, hi, all to Helen back listeners, um, past, present and future. I'm so, so honored and thrilled to be here. And I will do a quick little introduction of myself and my background, maybe more formally than I will usually speak about myself. Um, I guess I can say that I am a lifelong student of the human condition maybe the human drama um, of hell and heaven and all the spaces in between. Um, I got my bachelor's in political science at Brown University and pursued my interest in policy ethics through the first year at Columbia Law School. But I discovered that I really enjoyed grappling with complex social issues, but didn't really like that win-lose, guilty-not-guilty dichotomy of the law. And I've been a lifelong practitioner of yoga and Buddhism, and I sought a more holistic and creative approach to social change. And around that time, I became really interested in dialectics, dialectical behavioral therapy, and I also um, I left to pursue a full-time career as an actor. And... Um, during that period, it became increasingly clear to me that social transformation really arises from our cultural habits. And I increasingly began to see art as a mirror and a change agent that's dependent on our uniquely human capacity for imagination and connection. Also at that time, I was working as a volunteer at a suicide crisis prevention hotline. And I became more and more interested in, in life on the margins, um, in trauma and, and the relationship between culture and our individual experiences of suffering. And I, I thought that I wanted to be a DBT therapist. Um, and I, I went into social work school and I found that similarly to law school, it really did lack the, the creative space, um, the, the opportunities for innovation and, um, and experimentation that I was really looking for. And because technology was such a, a driving part of my experience of living in the world, and it seemed to be such a driving force in how we were all interacting with each other, and it, it was largely absent, if not entirely absent, in my social work experience, I instead went and got a master's in integrated media arts at at NYU's Tisch. And now I am what I like to call a wellness artist and social experience designer. So um, really looking to help people transform extreme emotions, interpersonal conflict and systemic obstacles into awareness rich opportunities for intentional future building in creative ways. Wow. Wow, I just you just enlightened me about things I didn't think of all of those things. But you also did you say along the way that you also have been doing coaching with people on a regular basis well, for a while, right? Or I like you... to call coaching wellness what? art and social experience. Design. Oh, okay. okay. Yes, yes, that is that is part of what I do is yes, it's coaching. And because coaching, um, life coaching, or wellness art, as I like to call it, is an unregulated industry, which is which gives a lot of room for a different kind of um, intervention or um, experience creation. And it's a really interesting space to be working in right now. And yeah, so that's, that's, that's where I'm living right now. Mm. That's what I'm creating in right now and really bridging, I would say, like, I'm kind of trying to 
bridge somatics, mindfulness, psychology, social innovation, creative technology, and the performing arts. Mm -hmm. Great, great. It's and uh, and those of you who are just watching on podcasts, I mean, listening on a podcast, but you're not watching, don't don't see that actually uh, she's of a different generation than me. I'm going to let you guess whether she's <laughs> like 30 years older or 30 years younger than me, but um, I, whatever it is. Uh, anyway, I'm timeless. 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 I'm now at an age where I care about my age. All right. So here's what I I want to I wanted I want us to move into talking about something today that probably will be beyond just today. Um, so I'm going to start by just going back a step. For those of you who haven't listened before, but also for those of you who have listened, it doesn't hurt to hear something that you already somewhat know, but don't you. And that, that is that um, dialectical behavior therapy is a treatment that really grew out of the experience of one woman suffering, uh, Marsha Linehan. And, when, and, and two podcasts ago, I actually told somewhat the story of this. So if you want to zoom back, you can find more on kind of the origin story of DBT. But you know, where, where the rubber meets the road for me is that she was 19 or 20 years old and she was in a psychiatric hospital for two years. She was harming herself. She was trying to kill herself. She was suffering every day. She didn't know how she would make it through. By the way, one of the, one of the most important things that saw her through was people who didn't know how to help her, but they knew how to be kind. And so that's just sort of a message that I've already always maintained because I don't always know immediately how to help people, but kindness goes a long ways uh, in the meantime. Anyway, so Linehan, um, at a certain key moment in that hospitalization, uh, she was uh, she said to herself, "If I ever get out of hell, this hell, this emotional hell, this suicidal hell, if I ever get out of this hell." I'm going to go back in and get all the others out. It was very moving to me. I mean, Marcia, she and I became friends in the late 1980s when I seek it and I learned about her treatment and went out to Seattle, started to get to know about it and started to learn it and incorporate it in what I was doing. And but it was so moving that somebody at age 20 uh, stated her life mission like that. And it was such a compelling mission. I mean, she's always used metaphors in her treatment, but, but this was, you know, get everybody else out of hell. And she meant get everybody else out who was suffering emotionally like she was. And, and in fact, that's what she has remained true to, to this day, is that's what she's done. And she's changed the world by developing this treatment. Um, and if you don't know much about this treatment, there's lots of places to find out about it, but including lots of the episodes of this podcast in the past. So, um, I learned this treatment and one of the key things about the, so, so getting out, getting people out of hell is still the mission. And that's my mission with you. Any of you who are in hell, any of you who were in hell yesterday, or you're going to be in hell tomorrow. I'm hoping that this podcast just gives you some free access to some ways to think about that and things that you can do. And from previous um, feedback I've gotten from people over the last four to five years, it seems that it does hit the spot for a lot of people. Um, now, what I, well, now I want to, I want to link D, DBT. Obviously, this brilliant woman put together this treatment for suicide, which is kind of the ultimate individual psychology problem, personality problem, human problem, the problem of suicide, which philosophers have struggled with. But she was struggling with that, a very um, level of how to help people who are struggling with suicide. By the way, one of the most valuable things that she did early on in developing DBT was to define DBT not as a way to prevent suicide, but as a way to build a life in which suicide would become more or less irrelevant because you'd have a life that was meaningful rather than saying, let's do everything we can do to have you not kill yourself. It was not, no, let's do everything we can do to help you get to a life that would be meaningful to you, whatever the heck that is. And so let's work on that. So that, that always also captivated me. Um, so she, she did that. That's the goal of this and other people who practice DBT, that's, that's 
that's their goal too. So it feels like part of a large community that keeps growing around the world. Now, let me jump to something that won't be obvious to you why first, but I was teaching many years ago, maybe five years ago, I was doing a DBT workshop for therapists in Buffalo, New York. And, um, and I thought it was a good, I thought a good workshop for two days, people seemed to receive it well. And I had good conversations with people, a lot of teaching. And this woman came up very, you know, afterwards, and she just looked at me and she said, I really, really enjoyed the workshop, but just let me say this, don't take our guns away. And I thought, what? <laughs> like, I don't think I mentioned the word gun. I don't, think I, th I don't think I thought of a gun. I don't think I thought of firearms. I don't think I thought of anything related to firearms, but there must've been something about where she was coming from while she's sitting, listening to, about DBT. And she says, don't take our guns away. And I thought, I said, I certainly wouldn't even dream of it. Um, and, uh, but it really connected with me. I, and I've never forgotten that moment because, you know, obviously in the United States, we are in a massive discussion, national dialogue and breakdown of politics about gun violence and what to do about these mass murders. Even of, uh, as, as my son Ruben said to me, a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, I can understand people going around shooting each other. People get really pissed and people have guns and stuff. But he said, but I don't understand that somebody would go into a classroom of third graders and kill them. Like, I don't get that. And I, of course, I, I, I don't get that either. I mean, I'm, if I knew that individual who did it, maybe I'd get to know more about it. But it's sort of like, wow. And so we're in the middle of this incredible debate, which is has its extreme elements, and then it has its moderate elements. But the extreme elements seem to be on the one side, the person who says, I believe in the Second Amendment, do not take my guns away, do not restrict my access to guns, do not change the rules about licensing guns. Wait, wait, wait. Can I interrupt? May I interrupt you? Absolutely. Up until up until just that last minute, because I, I want to just reflect on what you said about Marsha. Sure. And um, I think what was so compelling was that what she really did is she looked at this this problem of suicide, this kind of, you know, quintessential expression of you could say wicked problem in humanness of complexity of really like, you know, reaching a point of no return where where the only solution seems you know seems to be to opt out and she redefined the problem she said it's not about really preventing the suicide it's she framed it differently and it's like so what's and she really looked at the nature of the suffering right and she said all right well what's the nature of the suffering it's it's you know maybe it's a lack of meaning or a lack of access to meaning so how do we create and give access you know, how do we help people create and, and give them access to a life worth living? Mm. And I think that it's worth looking at with gun control, you know, what what is the problem? I think it's, you know, maybe the easy analogy to make with suicide is like, yes, there are there are mass shootings and there are gun deaths. And we the the I think the the direct linear answer is, okay, well, let's just take away everyone's guns or like, let's barricade the schools, depending on which side of this you're on. Mm. But I'm curious what you think and, and kind of maybe underneath all of this, you know, what is the nature of the suffering? What is, what is the problem in mm. our, in our country, in this moment in time where you know, we are not just having this exponential rise in, you know, violent, you know, gun violence or whatever in violent gun, violent gun violence in, in gun violence, but, but we're also having a rise in the amount of people that are buying personal guns and in, and really an inability to have conversations. I think, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think it's such an, an interesting and difficult problem is that you know, there's a real polarization about what the problem is, what the solution is, mm. with two completely different perspectives. Yeah, and I, um, 
And I think one of the things that has paralyzed being able to figure that out, and by the way, you're the one who probably two years ago brought me, brought to my attention what the nature of wicked problems, which I then went and read about, and I've been interested in ever since. And so this problem about gun violence is meets all the criteria that people have laid out of a wicked problem. So it's very hard to define a wicked problem. That's actually one of the characteristics of it. It's very hard to define what would be the solution to a wicked problem. That's okay. It's very hard to see the boundaries of a wicked problem because it actually intersects with multiple other wicked problems. So I think that what we have in gun, in gun uh, violence is a wicked problem in that um, it's hard to define because if you define it from the point of view of you're one of the uh, sort of at the, at the edge of don't take my guns away, then you're going to define it in one way. If you're at the edge of uh, take away their guns, you're at the other edge of this problem and you're going to define it as a different problem. And if you're standing outside both of those people as a third uh, observer saying, oh, look at this terrible problem. These people can't talk to each other. They're doing each other in. You, you're going to define a different problem. So it's actually a very complicated mess. Actually, by the way, when I read about wicked problems, there's people who've defined messy problems or problem of big messes that, that actually is sort of overlaps with the wicked problems are they're a little different. But a wicked problem, suicide is a wicked problem for most people who kill themselves because by the time they kill themselves, there are multiple other problems bleeding into the into the suicidal problem. It, is, it's not, it never stands alone and, and it's really hard to solve. Um, so Linehan had this brilliant way of grabbing hold of people and saying, what would make your life meaningful, not what would make you stop killing yourself. And that was different at the time. And it really is different. So about this, what's the problem? I mean, I think the problem, Nicole, I, I was actually, to be graphic about this, I was lying in my shorts in my backyard of my house, <laughs> looking at the sky, literally yesterday, thinking about this podcast and thinking about this topic. And I was thinking, um, I started to think if from a dialectical point of view, even though we haven't started talking about dialectics, many people know about it, it's in previous podcasts, but from a dialectical point of view, one thing you have to be able to do is to observe your own thoughts. You have to say, here's what I think about this and realize that there are alternatives, you know, that your thoughts are not the only game plan for this particular situation. Your thoughts are one take on a big situation. And then if you can have that perspective, then you can say, oh, look at that guy over there. Okay, like I had an uncle, Uncle David. Yeah. I mean, he was a gun owner. He had been an FBI agent. He was a hunter. He had guns at his house. I'd go to my cousin's house. They'd be there. I mean, and, and I thought, oh man, Uncle Dave has guns and stuff. And <laughs> Uncle Dave does this and Uncle Dave. I thought, you know, but I know that Uncle Dave was then and probably would be now one of those people who would say, do not take my guns away. Yep. Do not take my freedom away. Do not take my independence away. Do not take my manhood away. Do not mm -hmm. sideline me, you people from Massachusetts and New York, mm -hmm. you sort of people who are elite liberals, and you think you know better than I do about my own life. Come and tell me about that when I can't get out of the middle class or I can't even get up to the middle of the middle class. Mm -hmm. So the economic problems are in the middle of this problem. The problems of watching television and watching social media and getting caught in one or another echo chamber where you actually don't even see, you know, like, like last night on television, I don't know if you watched it, but the hearings about the January 6th uh, insurrection went on and, and Fox News chose not to show it. They're the only channel that showed, they yeah. didn't want their people to see it. And, and not only that, Tucker Carlson, when he was on, they, they chose to run his whole hour without any commercial breaks because they didn't want to lose people to switch over. So, and I'm not vilifying them because you could say the same things about people who are more on the left, like MSNBC, but it's sort of like, we've got these echo chambers where it's really hard to have this dialogue with Uncle Dave. Absolutely. Well, I think there, I think that without a doubt, I mean, I think if we try and contextualize this moment in time and we look at what the landscape, like who is living with what information, 
Like mm. we don't all share the same experience of reality with the same kinds of information mm. in the, in the way that we did five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly not 20 years ago. I mean, I, within the course of my lifetime, what it means to consume information, to have the facts has changed dramatically. And I think that, that, that continues to be a real, that in and of itself is a really, really complex and an interesting issue. And I think that even if we take that away, which, which, you know, we can't really do, but if, even if we pull away the, the kind of partisan, um, sniping about, and, and, and where the coverage is, and we look at like, who is buying guns and why, mm -hmm. and then who, who is fighting guns and why? And, and if we just look at the map, the people that are buying guns are in the middle of the country. They're in more rural areas. They do have, they have a pretty specific demographic um, profile. And then the people that are fighting guns are, you know, they tend to be in more urban areas. They tend to have a higher level of education and, and they, they tend to have different, you know, just different jobs. So what, what I found that was really interesting that I didn't know was that a lot of people that buy guns um, buy them for personal protection. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the nature of the suffering, on one hand, if you're buying guns because you think they're going to keep you safe, you mm -hmm. really believe that owning a gun is going to keep you safe and someone's going to take your safety away from you. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I'm just trying to put my mind in the position of that person, because, you know, I live in New York City. Do I think that a gun is going to keep me safe? I'm terrified of guns. You know, um, I've held a gun one time and I actually, you know, I went to, I think, a gun range in New York City on as a birthday thing. Um, and I was I was terrified. I was going to like you know, shoot the wrong person. Mm. Uh, that's my, that's the, you know, the range of my experience, but did you, know, you wait, 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 did you have an idea of who the right person would be? <laughs> I think the target was the right, there was no right person. Oh, oh, okay. He was like, just get in the direction of the target and make sure nothing is missing. Oh, right. The whole time I'm all like, right. oh my gosh, I hear these things go off <laughs> the wrong way all the time. Like, ah. right, um, right, right. yeah, no, definitely. Like, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm a little skittish, but like, if I believe that my safety, you know, like right now I'm in a house by myself. I'm a woman, like I'm, I don't usually stay at a house by myself. Like there've been times where it's late at night and I hear scary noises and like, I don't want to be like, oh, poor me. But like, I can imagine if I lived in the middle of nowhere, Absolutely. there might be some, and if so, if I'm like, this is, this is my life. I'm out here in the country and this is my daily experience. And you want to take away what keeps me safe? because nobody's going to be like driving up to take care of me in 30 seconds, the way they do in New York city. So I can under, I mean, that's just a different, that's a different experience of reality than the people that live in the cities that are saying, are you crazy? Get rid of these guns. Who needs them? So it's no, just I, an interesting thing. Even if we take away the media bias and, and the, these kind of echo chambers yeah, yeah. To, yeah. to live, I mean, the, our country, the the map you know where we have the red and blue where the red is kind of in the center and the geography of the center the demographic mm -hmm. the center versus what's on the periphery it's like you know they're different countries yeah yeah and and i think that when you're somebody who has held a gun once i'm probably ahead of you by having held a gun two or three times um but i didn't i grew up around guns but i never was drawn to guns, but yeah. um, I was part of a culture in Oregon, fairly small town, rural Oregon, yeah. where gun everybody had guns. And, and so, but I do think you would have to, if you're gonna be dialectical as part of yeah. your thinking about this, you would have to do ask exactly what you're asking and find out what is that person experiencing? Because you already know what it's like to be a person who's afraid of there being more exactly. guns. You already know what it's like to be a person who thinks that the mass shootings are horrible. And you're already a person maybe who has those, those, that whole right. broad set of beliefs. 
But then it means that like when I work with a patient and I need to use dialectics and I have a patient who is really different than me yeah. um, and he's sitting, he or she is sitting opposite me and I, and we are stuck and they feel misunderstood by me or they just mm -hmm. feel I don't get it. Um, at a certain point when I just have to drop my whole shtick and say, you know what? I just got to get in there where you are. I got to get in there where you are. Could you just talk for a while about what it's like to be you? I mean, with the guns, you'd have to say, can you just talk for a while about the good news about having guns? Because guns scare me. And I, I think, but I realize that that's my pers perspective on life. And if I had grown up where you grew up, I'd probably feel different. So tell me about it. And then you'd have to really listen. And I, my own criteria for that is listen and listen and listen and ask and ask and ask until you get to the point where you say, oh, got it. Of course you want guns. Right. Of course you want an AR-15. Of course right. that makes, uh, God, I've suddenly- It makes so much sense. And then, then you can have a dialogue. Before that, it's like you know, sniping. It's like what's going yep. on, you know, back and forth. But it's kind of like, then you can say, oh my God, I, I'm, I feel like running out right now and getting some guns because I just, I hardly have any. And what if somebody comes into my house? And right. so I think it's important. And what happens is that we get caught listening only to the people that talk yes. like us. And then we don't hear the other person. Or if we do, we only hear the extreme ones that get above the noise. And then you hear the extreme yes. ones that on both sides of the fence could be kind of crazy at, at the edge because extremes kill. And one of the things that Linehan learned and, and built into DBT is that extremes, you have to move from extremes towards the middle and uh, of, of what kind of emotions, what kind of thoughts, what kind of actions you have. And that doesn't mean you just become sort of Mr. Milktoast or something moving towards the middle or getting some compromised formation. No, it's like you actually get that there are people who are passionate about guns for many reasons and there's people who are passionate about having gun control or restrictions. I almost know nobody who says all guns should be taken away, though that the way it's portrayed in the extreme versions right. is, is as if somebody is saying that particular thing. I just never hear that. Now, maybe some people are saying that. Yeah. Uh, but I think the original view of the Second Amendment, if you read the very yeah. tiny statement that's the mm -hmm. Second Amendment, it's just a sentence. Yeah. It just it doesn't say all this stuff about it just says that people have a right to bear arms as part of uh, securing their freedom uh, to protect themselves to defend themselves and their family basically is what it was meant to be and it didn't mean you should be able to have this many guns or do that many or not have any restrictions, all of that is kind of like become of part of the extremist dialogue but Wait, so let we, me ask you this really quickly, so how do you get to a place that's a little bit be that's beyond your own confirmation bias. So, you know, like when you're, when you're particularly, if it's something that maybe you do have that, that does poke you a little bit when you're working with someone and, and you do believe that you're right, because I think that for all of us, when we're, you know, there are areas where we're all a little bit more open and we're like, yeah, okay. I can, I can see that maybe there's an argument there, but then there are areas where like, no, there's just no reason. I mean, I can say with like assault weapons, I just don't, that's a harder one for me. And yeah, yeah. you know, that was your example. But so when you're working with the patient and you know, there's just something that seems wrong, like where you have a judgment and you have a lot of evidence that's just flooding in about well, heard, why. Yeah. Yeah, the way I think about that, and well, let's use the AR-15 mm -hmm. example or some assault weapons with large magazine capacities and these things that really are made for mass murder and yeah. war, right? So why does an individual need that? Um, and the way I think about that is that uh, I might not be able to get all the way into the foxhole of the person and saying, yes, God damn it, I need an AR-15. Right. However, there is a human being there who has arrived at that and yeah. is one of millions of human beings who've arrived at that yeah. and who articulate that, well, it's a gun that's really good for killing varmints in my yard. It's a gun for it's it'll if I, I, I was hearing a woman talking about it the other day, she said, 
you know, this gun is amazing because it's only like five pounds instead of a 20 pound assault weapon. Mm. So you can hold this thing. You literally, I, as a woman, if somebody, if I, an intruder came in my house, I could pick it up in two seconds and it would be ready to go and I could aim it and shoot it, which I could not do if it was a rifle or a bigger thing. And a handgun, I'm not sure that I could hold steady. And now I've learned, so the AR-15 is really a great uh, defend my family weapon. And so I, I was just listening to that because yeah. I'm trying to drop my own um, biases enough to hear why somebody would end up there. But, but Nicole, I think people, even if somebody ends up at a position that you could never buy, you could never side with, you could never quite see the full wisdom as, or even a position that's like based on lies. Yeah. Or still, they got there. How did they get to that position? What were the motivating forces that led a whole large contingent of people, like 20 million in the country, right. to need assault weapons in their neighborhood? Like, right. how did that happen? Where does that come from? So I think there's a lot of valid antecedents to right. that final decision to go to the gun store and get an AR-15. So then and you're I'm looking interested at the in those system. Vans. Right. So then you're looking more systemically and you're kind of looking at like, all right, what what's the relationship here, the kind of causal relationships here that are informing these decisions that are making and and kind of validating. So when we're looking at the kernel of truth on both sides, you're kind of you're looking maybe at a broader framework than just maybe the 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 end result. Exactly. And I, and, I, and I think it's part of being dialectical. Yeah. Because if you just look at the end results, then you're just stuck with this one person is saying, God damn it, I have I deserve I need and I have and do not take away this assault weapon. And the other person is saying, do you realize that's the weapon that was used to kill 19 children in a school in Texas, and all these children in Connecticut and all these other people? Do you realize that those are and that we should have those out of circulation? And because then you're getting two sort of, uh, what would you call it, talking points that right. actually grow out of a much more complex Of course, well, I think history. what you're saying makes so much sense because in terms of looking for, and you know, wicked problems don't have solutions. They just have, you know, kind of responses because they're, because we don't have, you know, mm. clear, easily identifiable, identifiable problems. Mm. There really are no solutions. There are just possible responses and you know what that looks like it just depends on really where you're standing and how you're framing the problem so when we're talking about you know what what possible solutions might look like what possible responses might look like and and how you know and those resolutions so solutions or temporary interventions will cause new problems i mean that's part of the nature of these complex adaptive systems so like when we're when we're intervening at some point, it's going to create all these other changes. But when we're, I, what I like about the way you frame this is that, so we when we when we kind of take this broader, more complex view of both sides of the dialectic, and, and then we can kind of see, all right, here's here's what's informing how both sides got to this place. Exactly. Then we can then there are multiple points where we can intervene and and make adjustments there it's a much kind of broader landscape to to create solutions it's 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 because i do think it's easy to get very very kind of calcified and 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 to feel very very stuck and what i you know dialectics is always about getting unstuck so it's nicer to see it as a more spacious and expansive arena and i think it has to be and it went, so when i was lying there in my shorts, looking at the sky yesterday and thinking about this, what I did was I went on a whole rant myself as if I was, you know, one of my distant relatives that's really like a, 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 a gun supporter, a Trump supporter, a, a right wing conservative. I mean, because that's not where I'm at in the political spectrum. But on the other hand, I grew up around it. And also I... Um, I, I went on a rant, I thought, started to talk as if, you know, I'm going to do a role play here. And, and the role play is that I am one of these people who is just fed up and sick about 
these people who are trying to restrict guns or, or find the way to do that. And, and I, it took me a while, but I started getting into it to the point where I was like, you know, I was sort of like a modern day Archie Bunker shouting in my backyard. I mean, it's sort of like I'm going on listening to myself and thinking, that's the guy. And the, the more I did that, the more actually it pulled in other things. Like when I said earlier in this podcast that I said, yeah, and you're going to take my masculinity away and you're going to take my independence away. You're going to take my freedom away. You're going to take my life away. You're going to take my family away. You're going to tax me to death. Yeah. And, and why? To pay for people who are immigrants coming across the border and their lives because they don't have jobs and, and, and pay for people who's, who are sick because they didn't take care of themselves. I'm, I'm going to have my hard-earned small amount of money taken away by this government and my guns are going to be taken away too. God damn it, you're not taking my guns away. Because uh, I've got, uh, that's my last ditch thing. I, if you come as a government into my house, I want you to remember I have a gun. I, but wait, I wait, of... wait, but see, this is what I wonder. And because, I mean, I know, like, you know, because that's not where you live politically, that I wonder, like, you know, does it, is it, is your understanding of that person, like, you know, is it, is it to some extent a caricature of, you know, of a type, you know, how, like, like, how do we avoid when we're, when we're trying to step outside of maybe where we live, particularly because we do live in these kind of bubbles of information yeah, where no, you're we're right. constantly giving, you know, like, because what you described, and I think it's, listen, I still think it's so important that we all do all the time, but you described a pretty, you know, this archetypical, Right. Republican, white, entitled, male, angry, like whatever that that is. I I mean, I and I'm a little bit more moderate than you are. That I think that it's it's just it's not that simple. And I don't think that right. the the I think it's stereotypical rather than actually emblematic. I think of the complexity of who that person is. I agree with you. I, I totally agree with you. And I could hear it myself as I was doing it because if you, I mean, it's you have to. You have to inhabit the other person in order to be able to yeah. uh, validate them and in order to take them into account when you're thinking. So a caricature like that uh, might not do it. Whereas as soon as you said that, Nicole, I thought about how my children, when they were growing up play playing youth hockey, and they had a hockey coach over in Holyoke, Massachusetts, where, my, where Ruben was playing hockey. Yeah. And he had this coach who was like, I just thought he was God's gift to coaching and children. He was so, so good. He was such a good coach, so present, so playful, so devoted to teaching the kids to play hockey, so nice to them. And they all liked him. And online, I see him on Facebook. He is the most extreme <laughs> and he works, he works at a, uh, he works at uh, Smith Wesson, a gun, a gun company. Yeah. And he's a, he's a real gun advocate and he's an extreme right wing person. And he writes this stuff that is the caricature. And then I think, wow. how do I put this together with this man? I, I almost want to write him and say, thank you for coaching Ruben. That's you, powerful. You were so sweet. And then you do, and then you have that. I don't quite get how you got from there to there, but you know, there's something to be asked about how somebody yeah. gets from there to there. Well, and yeah. I think we are all that complex in a lot of ways. I think that that's mm. actually what's misleading about the way, you know, we, we, where we see these kind of fragments of each other, mm. whether it's through social media or the way that we are portrayed um, or the way that, you know, the teams of right and left or this type and that type. I think what we, you know, when I, when I'm trying to think about gun control, what I, I mean, I think about a gun advocate being devastated about Uvalde. Like, I just think about someone to just think like, you know, I think about, I think about a mother, um, you know, a father that's just, that's just like, but that really, that still wants her gun, but that just doesn't see that as the problem. Right. Like, I, right. I really see that it's a human being mm. that, that thinks it's just like disgusting and horrific. I mean, there's a lot, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of misinformation um, about mental illness and that, you know, where, where there's this, this real reflex to attribute uh, mass shootings to mental illness and there isn't real evidence for that and mm -hmm. this, you know belief that if oh okay the the 
you know, mental, um, if the mental health care industry did a better job, then maybe we wouldn't have these kinds of issues. And that, that becomes a whole other um, kind of complex landscape. But uh, I don't think that there's this, I don't know, I don't think it's, I think that it is people like, you know, Ruben's coach that really believe in the same way that you believe and the same way that, you know, the parents of the victims believe that like that they're doing the right thing. Right. And I think that that's what makes these questions so challenging and important and, and like finding different ways to have these conversations because what creates and perpetuates the polarization is seeing each other as other rather yeah, and, than and, as, you know, other, you know, rather than as human beings, just like us, that if we were in those same conditions and we lived that way and we had the, you know, that we would be that way too. Well, and, and also their experience when you're outside of somebody else's yeah. context and their life, your, your experience of even the thought of what if you had six guns right. is like, wait a minute. I mean, and then if you were actually there, like Ruben and I, I did some teaching in uh, Sweden and went and found my ancestors' homes from the 1800s. And, uh, but we stayed at a man's house who was a, a hospital administrator who became a friend. And he was taking, he wanted to take me and Ruben hunting. And I, I hadn't, didn't have much interest in hunting. Ruben definitely had interest in hunting. And we did target practice at night for the several days. And then on the weekend, we went hunting. All right. And what I noticed about this man who is just as gentle and sweet and has three children, and they're just like very cool and uh, living out in rural area in Sweden. Um, you didn't have to go far to go hunting. And... Uh, or to jump in freezing cold water in November, by the way, uh, and then go back in a shack where there was a sauna going. It's like back and forth, back and forth. It was quite an experience. Um, but um, this, this man, he had all these guns and they were all put away in a certain place. Totally comfortable with that. He grew up with that. His grandfather grew up with that. His grandfather, grandfather grew up with that. You know, it's like a part of life and also gun. It was obvious that he was careful with the guns and safe, but not at all shy, of course, about the guns. He uses them every week. So it's sort of like you have to get your what I like about what you did after I did this kind of caricature rant, um, because that caricature rant might not be a bad first step on your way in. And I think it but is then, important. But then you realize, you know what? This is also that hockey coach. Yeah. This is also this person who's actually as as much devoted to the protection safety and learning of children as anybody i had seen and so it's like putting these things together is hard it's hard in our own yeah. heads to get out of these sort of caricatured dialogues and so hey i wanted to go back one other thing you said before um i do think that in the long run in this podcast we'll be probably weaving in and out of the theme of what is dialectics yeah. and what is a dialectical world view what are dialectical interventions and solutions and things like that and i just want to say that it, it is inherent to the definition of what dialectics is is that it is a certain view of how one arrives at the truth and the way you arrive at the truth is actually not to figure out what the truth is there's a little paradox there. I mean, you arrive at the truth by continuing to ask what's left out, and you arrive at the truth by continuing to see oppositions emerging and then seeing if you can see where they go from there. And, and that there's that the truth is evolving, it never stops. And therefore, even the word solutions yes. in a dialectical framework is a problematic word, I think. I think interventions is a good word. Yeah. Strategies is a good word. Tactics is a good word. But solutions, you may never have the solution to a problem. You just move the ball forward by continuing. So in, in our current situation, our dialogue, hopefully right. you and I, the dialogue we're having, and if it, spawn, and it, if it uh, leads to other people to think about things or have other conversations about this topic in a certain way, you know, hopefully that's a step in the direction of becoming more realistic, more complex, more flexible, more willing to look at both sides. 
which is well, really I just, the yeah, I love I and mean, I just want to just add to that because I think one of the and and I think it was uh like horse riddle that came up with the framework of I think so. Uh, originally, like of of wicked problems, and right. it was a reaction to the um, the kind of hyper professionalism and um, mm. kind of the 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 hyper siloed like expertise. And um, I mean, it was I guess like the industrial revolution's version of nicheification, um, but where but where problems were much simpler and it was easier to kind of break down our, our world, the organization of our world into the silos of problem solution. And, mm -hmm. and you know, there was this professionalization of everything. I think that mm -hmm. was, you know, characteristic of the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. But part of what happened was as a result of, of solving, of creating solutions, all of these problems and, and creating a much more interconnected, much more complex world. And, you know, you can argue it's always been interconnected, but in, in ways that just, you know, accelerated so, so quickly, um, the kind of the cause effect relationship is so, and, and now I think the way technology has, has, you know, impacted all of that. It's it's really beyond any of our kind of individual capacity to to pinpoint and language mm -hmm. is. I mean, we use language in a way that's very concretized. It's very you know, it's this or that, and and I think paradox is the nature of pretty much everything. So I think it's so so valuable and so important to always acknowledge that we will use you know that we we label things as a certain way, but language is so limited. And, you know, we can, we can latch on to something as being the static destination, but really it's just, it is just always part of a conversation. It is always part of this kind of interbeing, this, you know, this mm -hmm. evolving truth. And I think it's easy to forget when we're, when we're in these debates, particularly the way we talk about things collectively as a culture, when we're, you know, we're, we're submitting policies and we're arguing and there's that side and this side or whatever, as though these things really exist mm. when it's much more ineffable than that. Mm. Mm. Hey, you know, um, I'm wanting us to stop in just a couple of minutes okay. today. Uh, Cause I think I informed you I'm, I'm going to Boston Celtics uh, game uh, in the NBA finals, which is what? how many, you did not tell me that's exciting. Yeah. I have, uh, a ticket and, and, and with my sons for tonight to go to Boston. So we're going to go to, uh, to there. So I have to leave fairly soon because there'll yeah. be traffic, traffic and stuff. And, uh, you know, and this is part of who I am. I'll, I'm sure I'll be bringing sports into the podcast sometimes. In fact, I have ideas about bringing people in who are athletes or trainers of athletes uh, to talk about how do they get, how do you help people get through, dig deep and get through pain and get through hardship. And, and because I think we have a lot to learn from those people too. So let me just say at the end that, um, uh, yeah, I already said that I would like, you know, bo both of us would appreciate getting feedback. And it's the first time that we've done this as a co-hosting thing. So you can give feedback on that too, though. I think it's going to take us a while just to kind of get our feet on the ground doing this. Um, it's, it's, I'm just excited about doing it. I'm very appreciative that Nicole's willing to do it and that we can get these conversations going. So um, anyway, we're going to stop and uh, uh, yeah. I'm tempted to say more, but then we aren't stopping. So we have no, to stop. I just want to say thank you. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. And I'm so excited to be doing this. Good. Yeah, very good. Great. Okay. So let's stop.